we are pretty casual, casual church here, except for Mike. Mike is, he's fresh in announcements, so <laughs> Mike will have on a tuxedo in announcements. That's right. But I'm usually casual, but today more so than normal. I did not make it to the dry cleaners in time yesterday. So it was either, so it was either come with a dingy, wrinkled shirt, because I can't iron, and my wife, my, one of my kids is really sick, and so I didn't want to wake my wife up and ask her to iron. I can't iron at all. I think it is a, it's a God-given gift. Ironing should be in, it's a fruit of the spirit. It should be in Romans 12 or, 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 or 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Those who can iron do so diligently. Would decrease the metal. When I iron, it looks like I balled up the shirt and just shook it to try to straighten it. It's still, I don't understand it. So I said, well, we're going casual today, more so than usual. But it's the job. It's the job. And the dry cleaner is not at fault. It is my own. Even though they're not the best dry cleaner, they have one star on Yelp. I use them because they're close, and they haven't messed up my shirts yet, except for this one stain. It wouldn't be helpful to explain right now to you all. All right, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. As I said last week, we are in a series on Romans. We went through the chapter. We concluded chapter 1 last week, but I explained that because of some of the cultural ramifications on the issue, Romans chapter 1, particularly verses 24 through 27, highlight uh, what we would call today homosexuality. And so because that's such a common issue, and to some degree, for some, it can be a polarizing issue, both those who, those who believe the Bible does not condemn it, those who believe the Bible does condemn it, and then there are people just kind of in between in the middle. So this, I would say, has been... I'd say this issue, uh, I want to make sure I'm careful making this statement because I believe it to be true. And this explains why we're talking about it today. The reason why we're talking about it, I'm not trying to single out the issue of this particular brand of sexuality as if to say like bad, bad, bad and heterosexuality is good, good, good. The reason why I'm bringing this issue up is because this is the one issue that I can think of in all of redemptive history, at least since the church has been around, was the first time that a sin issue that the church has always thought was a sin issue is being presented as not a sin issue. And the church is being asked to rethink what it's thought about this issue and embrace a different issue under the banner of it being loving. I cannot think of another time where a particular issue that the church has always thought was sinful is now up for debate. There are other secondary issues, but this would be an issue that the church has been unified in its position for up until the most recent of times, maybe the last few decades at best. So this issue isn't because we're trying to single out 
an issue. I believe those who are advocates for uh, homosexuality and in a sense that God does not condone it, he does not condemn it, have brought this issue to the church saying you must rethink what you've believed to be true about this issue. And so it's caused us to go back and examine the scriptures to see are we right or are we wrong? And actually other ways that the church has failed, like in particular issues of slavery and racism, have been used as justifications for that. So you will hear things like, well, the church was wrong on slavery, so why can't they be wrong on this issue, on sexuality? So it really is, in many ways, it's a good logical argument because the church did fail miserably as it relates to slavery and racism, but that is a different discussion. Today, what I'd like to do is explain sort of, I want you to understand sort of the, in this passage in Romans, this is one of the greatest passages that talk about this, but there is a different way to understand this passage from those who would profess to be genuine Christians, but believe that the Bible does not condemn monogamous, committed, loving sexual relationships between the same genders. That's what's really at stake. And so that's what the church, anyone who professes to be a Christian, is, is having to wrestle with. In fact, if you go, in fact, this issue is such a big deal that in any context you go in, at least in the context that I'm in, if you say that you are a Christian, if not the first question or one of the first questions is, so you believe gay people are going to hell. And you are left with sort of now defending or having to explain a statement that's loaded. That's a loaded statement. Because straight people are going to hell too. It's not like, oh, it's just the Bible. First of all, let me just say this. The Bible does not condone monogamous heterosexual relationships that are sexual. It doesn't. So it's not like if you're straight and you're together and you're having sex, the Bible is cool, like you're glorifying the Lord. You're not. The Bible only condemns one sexual relationship, condones one sexual relationship. What we see is between a man and a woman. So the issue is not if two people love each other and are committed, the real issue is, is gay marriage a biblical reality? Now, as I said last week, there are people, and some of them are brothers and sisters among us, who struggle with the attraction of, of this. They've, they've, they struggle with this. So this isn't something that is, it's not a trivial issue. It's not an out there issue. This is a, this is a close to home issue. This is, a, this is our brothers and sisters in here struggle with this. And there are those of us who do not. And the temptation is to self-righteously look down on other people who do struggle with this issue. And I would say if that is your, if that is your bent to, to be grossed out or look down on someone who struggles with this issue, then I would say in no uncertain terms, shame on you. Because every issue, every issue that is sinful, is worthy of God's wrath. And the only reason why we struggle with what we struggle with is, is the question that God answers. It's a question that he answers. This isn't a bash on people who struggle with same-sex attraction. The passage, as I said last week, is speaking to those who embrace 
the lifestyle, who pursue the lifestyle. But to be faithful, now I've taught about this. I have for a number of years, I have not studied any other issue more intently than this issue since 2011. I've read countless books. I've read almost every argument. Unless a new argument comes, it's just a regurgitation of the same stuff I've read. I don't need to reread it. But I've read almost everything. I've wrestled with this for years and have, I've studied very well. As a, as a church, in 2015, we did eight sermons on this. So I do not intend to try to communicate eight levels of sermons of material into one Sunday, nor do I intend to create a series on this issue right now, although every few years it is good to revisit this issue. In 2015, the Supreme Court passed for gay marriage to be legal in the United States, and the church really was, became exploited, exploited. And now the cultural definition of love is approval. So if you are a genuine Christian and you really love Jesus because he was loving, then in order to be genuinely loving, at least according to non-Christian standards in many ways, you have to approve of everything despite the fact that I didn't see Jesus approve of anything almost. Even his own disciples, he would be like, are y'all listening to what I just taught? Like, what is wrong with you? So this morning, I'm, just, I'm setting this up because I want to make it clear, we're not singling out an issue. To be fair, to be fair, the issue singled out the church. And so now we have to respond to it. If drug dealers say, Selling drugs is not sinful, we got to speak to it. If, if murderers, if liars, if all these things say, hey, the Bible doesn't say that we have an obligation to say this is what we think that it says. And so, but there hasn't been that many issues that I can think of uh, that do this. So this is more a response to the cultural framework that whether or not you face this issue, you will. You will. So what I want to do this morning is, is go back to Romans chapter 1. I want to begin by reading a pro-gay interpretation of this passage. I want to be fair and give you an interpretation that would say the Bible does not condemn monogamous gay relationships. And, and one of the premises, the main premise of the argument is this. The biblical authors did not understand orientation. So they were unaware of a same-sex orientation. That's not what the biblical authors understood. Now, there are many problems with the logic, but it's understandable. That the, the, the Paul and the other authors did not know about same-sex orientation, people who are naturally inclined towards people of the same gender. So when the Bible is talking about this, it's not talking about people who are naturally inclined that way or how we would say today born this way. The Bible is talking about people who are naturally not inclined that way and pursue that lifestyle. Which if you are, if, if someone is coming from being heterosexual to then being gay, that's not encouraging to them either. It's not encouraging to them either. Because it's basically saying, oh, I'm wrong because I'm doing this, but you're not. So there's just a lot of challenges with this reality. But I feel like it was good to at least take today and park on this issue and look back. So I want to begin by reading these verses. Uh, the main verses in question are verses 24 through 27. And then I'm going to read word for word a pro-gay analysis of these verses. And then I'll respond to that analysis. 
Let's pray. Father, you've called us to be faithful and bold when necessary, compassionate and patient always. Sometimes when we say things that others disagree with, even a whisper can be too loud if a person doesn't want to hear it. And so, Lord, I pray that because my voice is just naturally loud, I'm naturally in your face. I pray that you would allow what I have to say today, what I believe you've given me to say, to be seen in light of what it is. I'm not here to make jokes or to mock or make light of anyone's struggle, but I'm also not here to be so sensitive to what I believe to be what your Bible says, that I'm unwilling to be, to push back against the cultural threshold that says I must, must, to be loving, change my perspective on this issue. Lord, I pray for those who struggle with this and who are resisting this, no matter how difficult it gets, because they want to honor you, I pray that they would not feel ostracized this morning, singled out or somehow their sin issue is on display, but to understand that this is an issue that has been doing significant damage to your church. And that as the church, we must, as we would with any other issue that was brought to the doorstep of the church and challenging our interpretation of your word on this issue, that we must, we must offer a counter proposal, a counter perspective, which we believe to be a biblical one. So Lord, help me this morning communicate this and help those who are listening today be able to, to use this for whatever way you see that would glorify you for our good. In your name we pray. Amen. I will, I will let you know when I conclude the pro-gay position. Beginning in verse 24. I'm reading from the a different translation of RSV. This is the translation I took from a particular website that has done a lot of work on this issue. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural and the men likewise gave up natural relations for with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in their own penalty persons the due penalty for their error. To understand what Paul is writing about, we must look at the event as a whole and not isolate a single portion of it. Each verse in the story gives us a glimpse into the situation. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. If we are painting a picture, it begins with lust. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now there is falsehood as well as idolatry involved, worshiping something other than God. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now dishonorable passions are presented. Looking back at, how this, at, looking back at this now, we see that this situation, this is a situation of lust, falsehood, idolatry, and dishonorable passions. Verse 26 and 27 continue. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. 
Looking at the men first will help to clarify the passage. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women. Stop. Do you, did you see that? They gave up natural relations with women, which implies that these men were heterosexuals by nature. The phrase translated as gave up in the Greek is the, is the Greek word ephenti, meaning to leave behind, forsake, neglect, or divorce. These men, therefore, divorced themselves from their own nature, that of heterosexuality, and were consumed with passion for one another. Women did likewise. As we see, Paul is talking about heterosexual individuals engaging in homosexual sex, which is contrary to their nature. Why would men do that? As any biblical scholar will tell you, context is everything. This is a situation of lust, falsehood, idolatry, and dishonorable passions. In this account, there are a number of men and a number of women, both plurals. This would, this would most definitely be an orgy. Everyone filled with lust and dishonorable passion, pass, passions, having sex with whomever, however. But why would Paul be talking about orgies? A little research uncovers the pagan practice of sacred sexual orgies. Baal was the Canaanite deity that was worshipped with sexual orgies on Mount Peor in Moab, in which Paul would have been familiar. With this contextual understanding, let us read the story again. Therefore, Paul gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged the natural relations for unnatural, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. Anyone who isolates the phrase natural relations to declare homosexual relations unnatural is injecting their own prejudice and reading entirely outside of context. Even if we were to isolate that phrase, it could only be used to condemn heterosexuals who go against their own heterosexual nature and engage in homosexual activity. As, Pastor Jay, as, as Peter J. Gomes, preach, preacher to Harvard University, further clarifies in his book, The Good Book, it is not clear that St. Paul distinguished, as we must, between homosexual persons and heterosexual persons who behave like homosexuals. But what is clear is that what is unnatural is the one behaving after the manner of the other. And the pro-gay perspective. So as you can see, the logic is what Paul meant in these verses is specifically, this is just one argument. There's another argument that says he's mainly talking about uh, pederasty, which is men having sex with young boys would be the other main argument as an interpretation of this passage. But it would be a clear rejection of uh, anything except a heterosexual acting like a homosexual, which is unnatural. In other words, the orientation of the person the biblical authors had no knowledge of, therefore they cannot be speaking to those who have a same-sex orientation. Therefore, this passage must not be used to condemn homosexuality between two people as a whole, but a particular kind of homosexuality. What would be someone who was straight that becomes gay is the one in view here. Well, there are many challenges with this interpretation, and that's very inaccurate, very many inaccurate 
challenges here. One of them is this is really, this is really what they call a straw man's argument because no one is saying this passage is about sexual orientation. So to say that it's, it's, a, it's about orientation and we have to defer between is it a heterosexual who becomes homosexual versus a homosexual by nature, that's not, no one is saying that this is what the argument is. So this is what they call a straw man's argument where you place up two possibilities and I have to choose which one they are. Well, that's not what we're saying. This passage isn't condemning sexual orientation. Paul is not describing a particular sex scene here, which this translator has described as an orgy, which are multiple people having sex at one time. Paul's not describing a, a sex scene here. Ironically, this person who did this said, we must see this in context, but they only went to verses 24 through 27. The greater context of this passage begins in verse 18. So in order to understand the logic of verses 24 through 27, you don't start at 24 and then you pick apart and highlight particular words. You step back and you highlight first more of the passage in context and then obviously the whole Bible. The challenge was saying this is about a group of people having sex and that's what he's talking about. It challenges the notion of 18 through 23. Now, I've taught 18 through 23 and 24 through 32, so I'm not going to repeat those. These are the last two sermons. You can feel free to go on the website and listen to those in greater detail. But I, we will hit that slightly because the, the challenge is 18 through 32 is a progressive. It's describing the progressive nature of sin that begins with a rejection of God. It's not talking about sexual orientation at all. Now, sidebar real quick. Here's the other challenge with that argument. If you say the biblical authors didn't know anything about orientation, here's a real serious problem. If you're a believer who believes passages like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that the Bible is inspired by God, then Paul is writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, as all biblical authors are. So you cannot just say that the authors didn't know anything about orientation. Are you saying God doesn't know anything about orientation or that he saw it unfit to explain the possibility of people being in an orientation that are exempt from some of the language that's used to condemn them? That would be a real challenging reality. Like we, we, we know we say Paul and whatever book we're reading, we talk about the author, but ultimately we believe God inspired these men to write what they wrote. So then we have to question, well, why would God not inspire them to include what would clearly, what he would clearly know we would see as something that's wrong that he would approve of through the spirit? Why would he not make that clear? There isn't one positive, one positive, there isn't one positive reference towards homosexuality in all of the Bible. So when, they, when you highlight, well, there's only six verses or eight verses that discuss it, well, there's not one that discusses it from the positive end. So just from a logical perspective, you have to rethink everything you know about sort of how you read and understand to even come to a place of a positive acceptance of it when there is not one single narrative in the Bible that actually acknowledges that as a possibility or makes any clear distinction that this is an exempt from God's wrath, this kind of relationship. But to the passage, 
This is a describing, as we looked at the last two weeks, the progressive nature of sin that begins with the rejection of God. So if it's just a group of people having sex, then are we saying that the only people that rejected God are this group of people? Well, that wouldn't be right to understand the passage that way. Now, yes, it does apply to those kinds of situations, obviously, and Roman Christians were aware of these. This is a Greco-Roman world. They were aware of these kinds of relationships, this kind of sexuality, but it wasn't limited. To say that it's only limited to that would be selfish at best, and I think it would be more unloving, if anything. Lastly, on that, just the issue, if Paul couldn't conceive in his mind, so if it's true that Paul could not conceive in his mind that someone would be born that way and have a natural inclination towards the same sex, then how can we be sure that he would approve of it? Like, if he couldn't imagine it and didn't think it to be true, then how do we know that he would actually be okay with it if he knew that it existed? Again, we don't know that. That's like me saying, if Tupac were alive, he'd think I was the best rapper. <laughs> now, I'm not even trying to, I'm just saying like, I'm trying to help you. You can't, I can't, I don't, you don't know that to be true. He's, that's, that's, that's not, he's not alive. How can I say what he would say and believe if he's never said that? There's no way for him to, that's, you can't make statements like that. So, but that's kind of what it's saying is if like, no, Paul, that's, it's, you can't say that with as a main construct of your position. That's a dangerous way to process your eternity. It's a dangerous nail, a hook to hang your eternal salvation on. But if Paul couldn't conceive of it, then why do we think he would approve of it, especially since Paul didn't even want heterosexuals to get married? Paul did not, listen, Paul... People act like people, people, let me read something. Let me read this real quick. I'm going to let Paul speak for himself. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. Two passages in this passage, 1 Corinthians 7. This is what he says. To the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them to remain as I am, single, unmarried. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. So in other words, be single, stay single. But if you can't be self-controlled, then get married so you don't burn. So he almost makes it seem like all of us who are married lack self-control. And so that's if you, that's what he's, listen, Paul is not an advocate for marriage, period. Because his point is you are distracted from worshiping God alone. So it's not like he's a, he's, so I don't even think, even if he, well, when I finish, I, I disagree that Paul did not understand the orientation. And, and there are people who, well, I'll read that in a moment. But, but if, if that were even true, I don't think Paul would approve anyway because he didn't want anyone to be married. He didn't want, he didn't want us to be married. If Paul were your, your, your singles pastor, he would tell all of you, you got the gift of celibacy. You wouldn't be, there would be, listen to what he's saying. Now about virgins, about virgins. He says, I have no command from the Lord. But I do give an opinion as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is faithful. Because of, this, of the present distress, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is, unmarried. Then he qualifies. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, 
I'm glad he qualifies this because I was starting to think, man, it wasn't sinful for me. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Paul. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned, but such people will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. To say that Paul didn't have that orientation in mind and he would have approved of it had he known, I think, doesn't carry the weight of the fact that the orientation that he was of, he didn't approve of. I mean, he almost, apart from that verse, you would have thought like, man, was it sinful? Did I sin against the Lord getting married? The challenge with this argument is that what the, the people who propose this to be true and say that we are reading into the passage, if we don't agree with their interpretation, are in fact guilty of imposing into the passage their own interpretation. They're guilty of doing that. So this is what I want to do now. Let's look back at Romans 1. I'm going to start from verses 18 through 32. I'm not going to teach all of this. I just want to read it in context and then provide a few brief thoughts about this passage from a, a different view, which I would say has been seen as consistently more biblical throughout church history. Beginning in verse 18, this is just to give us the fuller context. I agree with him that context, 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 but I don't start at verse 24. You start at verse 18 because I think that's where the context begins. After the, after the statement of, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power to save, for salvation to everyone who believes, first Jew and the Gentile. He gives that in verses 16 and 17, and then he begins to explain in verse 18, and he says this, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them, for in his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who was praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own passions, own persons, the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do, not, they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers. God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Okay, in that context, in that context, now let's look at verses 24 through 27. With this context in mind, that God is 
is, is describing humanity. People have rejected God from the creation of the world, which we talked about too. I'm not going to get into, that's two sermons ago. You can, you can listen to that message. That's what he's talking about. And he uses a word to describe this in verse 26. I want to read 24 through 27 again, and we're going to zoom in on this. Therefore, God delivered them over and the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. In verse 26, it describes the relational dynamic between these folks as a disgraceful passion. A disgraceful passion. That's important to understand what does that mean in the context of this. Now, again, as I said two or three messages ago, we must always understand that the Bible is from God's perspective. Always. He inspired men to write it, but it's from God's perspective. So when we talk about these words and these terms, it's not just Paul's perspective or his understanding of culture. This is God's perspective. So he starts off beginning with, in verse 26, I want to highlight this, that he calls it a disgraceful passion. Your, your translation might say dishonorable passion or something like that. There's some word that, that describes the passion. There's a word that modifies the word passions, and it's a negative term no matter what translation you use. That word, disgraceful passions, in my translation or dishonorable, is making a point. Now, when we think of passions, we may think of um, sort of this almost like a violent sense of, you know, if you watch a movie, you ever watch one of these movies, a romantic comedy, and two people just fighting each other. They can't get off of each other to, to get to having sex. That's how this, that's kind of how you see these, how it plays out. That's not what it's talking about here. The disgraceful passion is seen in verse 24. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. Disgraceful passion, the passion he's describing is a warranted desire. This isn't God giving them over to something that they don't want. It's a desire that's in their heart that God's giving them over to that passion. This, this passion is different than a temptation. The temptation to do this that's rejected, which are brothers and sisters who struggle with that, that's not, this isn't describing them. This is describing a warranted, a desired, a wanted feeling and emotion that one is willing to pursue. This isn't talking about an unwarranted desire. When it says a dishonorable passion, that's the passion it's talking about. This disgraceful passion from God's perspective is saying that it is disgraceful for you to have a passion, a warranted, wanted desire for that from God's perspective. That's really what he's saying here. And he uses it before he even says that in verse 
24, he describes this. So that the bodies were degraded among themselves. This is important language because what he's saying is a desire of the heart that God gives these people over to, which is a disgraceful passion, leads to a degrading of their bodies. So he's not talking about just, just the act. He's not talking about a specific kind of, talking about the action itself is degrading bodily-wise. So from God's perspective, that is what he's seeing and wanting us to understand that it is degrading your body to do this. So the disgraceful passion leads to degrading your body. There's no distinction at all on whether they love each other or not. There doesn't need to be from God's perspective because he's talking about a, in, in sort of a, an evolution of idolatry that leads from worshiping God, rejecting God, to accepting, accepting man in a very sinful way. This is not describing, this is not describing a particular kind when it says you're degrading your bodies. He's talking about the sexual acts themselves. So this disgraceful passion or dishonorable, whatever word before passions in your translation that has a negative connotation is there for a purpose because God has given them over to the desires, the passions of their hearts. And from his perspective, they're disgraceful because you degrade your bodies by pursuing them. That's the logic of his, this passage. And he's not describing a small group of people that are having sex in a group. He's describing the, the logical or the illogical reality of humanity, sort of why this exists. He's describing why what we would call homosexuality exists. One of the keys in also understanding this, as I said this last week, is the definition of the word natural. In the pro-gay perspective, he did not offer any, any thoughts on that, except if you say that the definition natural condemns that, then that you're being unloving, is essentially what he said. In fact, let me reread what he said. He said, anyone who isolates the phrase natural relations to declare homosexual relations unnatural is injecting their own prejudice and reading entirely outside of context. That's his perspective. I would submit to you that I think he's doing the same thing, that he's doing that, because he didn't speak to what does natural mean and what are the word usages for that and sort of how do you get natural. So last week I said this, and I want to repeat this because this is important in understanding this passage, is what is the definition of natural? And in order to do that, we have to look at what are the men and women that Paul is describing here. And I mentioned this, I said that Paul does not use the common usage in the Greek. Remember I did this thing about there. If I say go over there, how do you know what that means? I'm not going to do that, that exercise again. You can listen to last week's messages if you want to get your English skills up. But the point is this, is that Paul uses language. There are multiple ways to describe men and women. And the most common, the most common are used are uh, honor for male and gine for female. That's the most common. In fact, the majority of the New Testament, when it uses male and female, will use those two words. There's only, only a couple occasions, and this being one, this may be only two occasions, I think, if I'm right, that a different way to use male and female is used. 
and they're only used in Genesis chapter 1. And the way that he uses male and female in the Greek, he uses the word arson for male, which is also used in Leviticus 18 and 20, and he used the word thelos for female in the Greek. So when Paul is talking about men and women, he's going back to, when he's talking about in context what is natural, he goes back to the creation account. He uses the language that points you back to the only, the primary usage of that was in the Genesis narrative, which is what did God intend? Now you have to remember, we were created for Genesis 1 and 2, but we live in Genesis 3. In other words, God created humanity to have no sin, but humanity sinned, and only thing that we've known our entire lives is to live in a world that's filled with sin. That's the only thing we know. We have no idea what it was like to live when there wasn't any sin. On occasion, there are some parents who've been so in love with their children that they've called them little angels when they were babies until they got to be twos. And then your, your knowledge of sin changes when you're like, I didn't teach you that. I didn't teach you to lie and say no and slam this and do that and get angry. We, we only know living in a world that's been corrupted by sin, but we were created to live in a world without it. So now in this world, we're fighting to not be corrupted by sin so that we can get to a world without it. But Romans 1 in this context, natural is referring to men and women as God intended in Genesis chapter 1. And this is why the creation narrative is huge. Because in this section, beginning in verse 18, Paul is reminding us that creation itself was enough to know that God exists and what kind of God he was. And Paul, on behalf of God, is drawing our attention to something deep by bringing us back to Genesis 1 and 2, to bring us back to that creation account. Now, if you look at the way 18 through 32 is structured, particularly 18 through 23, it, it, it talks like this. For the creation of the world, it kind of explains like the creation of the world was enough, and they didn't, they didn't, they rejected that. So as a matter of fact, his, his exact language, if you look at verses, here's what Paul says. He says in verse 20, for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what is made. So even in his just general description, he's describing that the creation of the world is sort of that transition from the creation of the world to now is what he's talking about. So from the creation of the world, God should have been able. He's going back to what was natural, what was right. The creation of the world is the right order of things. It's the natural order of things. So he brings us back to the natural order of things. And he basically is showing us in this trajectory that, look, each day of creation is supposed to highlight God's glory. That's what creation is supposed to It's supposed to highlight the glory of God each day, and it gets progressive. It gets progressive. Each day that he creates reveals why he's worthy of worship because he creates all these things. There is a progression to the six days of creation. And so he's kind of using this in a very succinct way to show that the creation of the world was not enough. Their observation of the creation of the world was not enough. But there's a, there's a trajectory here. The six days of creation, it builds up. It builds up. It builds up. It builds up. And then it gets to mankind on day six. What we call the Imago Dei, which is the image of God. 
This is a huge moment in creation because mankind is utterly unique in all of the other creation, completely and totally unique. In fact, so unique that God says this in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, which he says this about nothing else up to this point that he's created. Here's what he said. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So nowhere does he say this about any other creation, any other created being. But when he creates mankind, he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let us make these human beings, mankind, to be like us, to be like us. So mankind is the most like God in its distinction, because God made that distinction clear, in its responsibilities. Verse 27, so God created man in his image. He created him in the image of God. He rejected the male and he, he created him male and female. So he gives mankind the responsibility to rule the world, to oversee it, to manage it, to have authority over it. So from God's perspective, Adam and Eve, who represented all humanity, are responsible to imitate God in that humanity with authority. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And all people, whether they believe in Jesus or not, are made in the image of God. All people. This is why when we disagree with people, we still have a respect for them because they're made in God's image. These are people that are imago Dei. But this is important, what Paul's getting at when going back to this account. Mankind is most like God in both his purpose and its distinction. We're the most like God. We're supposed to worship him, imitate him, and distinction, we have responsibilities that are distinct. So God creates Eve as a complementary distinction of mankind. This is the pinnacle. Believe it or not, mankind is very, very high and very, very important to God. Very important to God. So he creates us in his image according to our likeness, his likeness. We're not like angels or any other beings that we read in Revelation. We were like, man, what is that going to look like? They're actually, some scriptures highlight that the angels are more like, whoa, humanity. Like these people are crazy. Like they, I mean, they look down and think, man, they, make, they can do, they just do whatever they want. You know, when the angels that stand before God, when he says, go do this, they're not like, man, I don't really feel like it, Lord. I don't really, I ain't have my cup of coffee yet. I'm not a reader. You know, when the angels, when God says, do this, it's like, go. When God tells us to do something, it's like, man. All right, is this really you, Lord, is it? Let me ask somebody else. Worship of God is significant. So as he's describing this, what Paul's getting at in Romans 1 is worship of God was rejected. It's rejected for worshiping other things. So idolatry, which is worshiping something else, is the most unlike God that humanity can be. Because we're like God, made in his image, worshiping God and imitating God, 
And those distinctions that God set up are all a part of being made in the image of God. So worshiping something other than God is the most unlike God that humanity can be. It's the most unlike God that we can be. And this is why you see in Scripture he hates idolatry so much. He hates it. It's the most unlike God we can be. It's one of the clearest illustrations of a rejection of God to worship something else other than him. We're talking about before Christ even. It is the most unlike God as it relates to worship. So how does homosexuality then fit into this? If idolatry is the most unlike God as it relates to worship, then homosexuality is the most unlike God as it relates to distinction. And so he's bringing this out to show this is the most unnatural version of what God created and intended mankind to be. It's the, it's the greatest illustration of the unnaturalness from the way God intended humanity to be and interact sexually that you can have. So he brings this up. He's developing this. He takes us back to creation so that we could see, oh, wow, this is how we're supposed to think. This is how we're supposed to be. Now, that cuts at the way we see things in culture because it comes off as unloving. And at times, the truth does feel like that. I don't, you know, we kind of have this impression of Jesus that, like, he was just this, this gentle dude. Like, if you were there when Jesus was flipping over tables, would you have thought that that was loving? Like, if you were there when Jesus was just flipping over tables, I don't think you would have been like, man, look at the love he's showing them for. <laughs> you wouldn't have probably thought that. You'd have been like, man, Jesus is going hard right now. You'd have been texting me when you had text back then, but you'd have sent a pigeon or something to be like, hey, come, come over here like Jesus is getting it in. Or when you saw him going back and forth in the temple with the fish, you wouldn't think that this was loving. Or when Jesus is standing in front of the rich young man who says, you know, what must I do to be saved? And he tells them all the Ten Commandments, and he says, I've done all of those. And he says, Jesus looked at him and loved him and then said, give up all your finances and then follow me. He challenged them. He challenged them. Love is not the approval of all things. It's the love challenges the wrong things. It's patient in those things, but it's faithful to say that those things are wrong. Paul is communicating something much more serious here about, and it's not just about homosexuality, obviously. The rest of the passage goes down to just the different attributes that are in the heart of mankind that they act out. But he highlights this one because the natural inclination in the passage is not an orientation. It's not, a, it's not an orientation illustration. It's a creation illustration. It's unnatural as it relates to creation. And again, this is different than same-sex attraction. Because for some people, that's an unwanted, unwarranted desire. 
and they fight, they resist, they pray, they're doing what they can to resist that, and we come alongside them. We come alongside them. The only sin we should be grossed out about is our own. We come alongside every other issue. We come alongside this one. But that's different than I must agree with that. There's a lot more I could say about the passage. There are two things I wanted to say, but instead I want to read something else to you. Because history, history does not accept the pro-gay perspective that I read. And in fact, other people who do not, are not even Christians do not accept that. Let me read a couple things to you. From a book, I have many books on this issue, from a book called Not That Kind of Homosexuality, this chapter of a book, listen to what this says. Even more telling, Bernadette Bruton, who has written the most important book on lesbianism in antiquity, which means back in the day, old school, and is herself a lesbian, has criticized many of the revisionist arguments regarding exploitation, pederasty, and orientation. In criticizing the orientation argument, she writes, Paul could have believed that the tribodes, the active female partner in a female homosexual bond, the ancient Kaniadoi, the passive male partners in a male homosexual bond, and other sexually unorthodox persons were born that way and yet still condemned them as unnatural and shameful. I believe that Paul used the word exchanged to indicate that people knew the natural sexual order of the universe and left it behind. I see Paul as condemning all forms of homoeroticism as the unnatural acts of people who had turned away from God. This is from a lesbian non-Christian who is defending lesbianism but honestly acknowledges what the Bible says. There's more. And then there's this admission from the late Lewis Crumpton Crompton, a gay man and a pioneer in queer studies, in a massive book, it's this thick, it's this thick. It's a, I mean, it's a really well-done book, it's this thick. In his massive book, Homosexuality and Civilization, he says this. Some interpreters seeking to mitigate Paul's harshness have read the passage in Romans 1 as condemning not homosexuals generally, but only heterosexual men and women who experimented with homosexuality. Let me make sure you understand, this is a gay man, a pioneer in queer studies, who's not a believer. This is his perspective. According to this interpretation, Paul's words were not directed at bona fide homosexuals in committed relationships. But such a reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstances. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or early Christian. So in other words, this man who has, is a pioneer in queer studies would say, nah, the Bible does not condone it. But what he says is, I don't condone the Bible. So I don't care what the Bible says, but he does not say that the Bible condones it. Lastly, a theologian, N.T. Wright, says this. As a classicist, I have to say that when I read Plato's Symposium or when I read the accounts from the early Roman Empire of the practice of homosexuality, 
then it seems to me they knew just as much about it as we do. In particular, a point which is often missed, they knew a great deal about what people today would regard as longer-term, reasonably stable relations between two people of the same gender. This is not a modern invention. It is already there in Plato. The idea that in Paul's day, it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men by older men or whatever, of course, there was plenty of that then, as there is today, but it was by no means the only thing. They knew about the whole range of options there. And if I were to give you, which time doesn't permit, a synopsis of Greek culture and early Roman culture when the Bible was written, you would see clearly that there were many who preferred same-sex relationships, but only married and had families for the purpose of procreation and land, and there were really business agreements. But it was clearly known in these cultures that men preferred, desired, dressed up as women, did a bunch of things, the same things that we see in our culture today. So I would actually disagree that Paul didn't understand same-sex orientation. I just think it wasn't a big issue for the Jews, and because they clearly understood it, it wasn't a distinction that he needed to make. It was a distinction he needed to make. I am pausing because, because this issue was such a big deal in our culture. There's always a lot more that could be said, and you always feel inadequate when you sum it up, try to sum it up at just one particular message. But I'm also pausing because I'm sure that there are people who are struggling with this in the room, some who struggle with the issue, and then some who know people and care about people who struggle with the issue. And I'm pausing because I, I, I can't, I can't, by, the, by, the, by my conscience is tied to scripture, I can't change what I believe the Bible teaches on this issue because some people will be offended or because even people that I know and care about struggle with this issue. As Christians, those of us who profess to be Christians, we are bound by the truth and we're bound by the word of God. We don't use hieroglyphics to explain our faith to us. We use a book that God has preserved over time. You know, we live in a culture now where if someone writes a blog post about it, it's absolute truth. If someone does a YouTube video, it's absolute truth. No one wants to really do the history and really get into the severity of some of these issues. And so while I would love to give much more attention to this, and maybe we will in the near, in the future, I felt it just necessary to at least go back and explain that the perspective on homosexuality, even though from a human being perspective, it's, it's, it's hard because they're just people who genuinely just love people of the same gender. And it almost does beg the question, why not? Why is that so wrong? But I also, I also didn't die on the cross for people's sins, nor did I create the world I'm not the one who's the final arbiter of truth. And so I can't change it, even if people struggle with that. And so in this culture, if you're a believer, 
this will be part of the cross that you're going to have to take up. And this will be part of the persecution that you are accepting by believing in Jesus. It's one thing to uh, not have people just like you or be think you're weird because you believe, but it's another thing when people are angry because you disapprove of a lifestyle that they think is accepting. And an article that I intended to initially read today from someone who was transgender, it was entitled, Four Things I Hear When You Say Hate the Sin, Love the Sinner. And one of the things that this individual said, I do want to highlight that. They said that times are changing and that essentially if you do not agree with this perspective, you will be on the wrong side of history. Um, so the second one says this, and I'm closing with this. This individual says, the second reason why I hate this sin, love this sinner, they don't like. First of all, this person was a professing believer. They were a pastor at some point, but is now a man who identifies as a woman. But he said, the fact is, a very limited number of proof texts at your disposal are at your disposal in the Bible to support, support this point. This is not the place for a lengthy response arguing that being transgender is not a sin, but it's worth mentioning that our current understanding of gender identity and sexual orientation would have been the most unknown to the writers of the Bible, and that homosexual is one of the most problematic textual interpretations in the entire Bible, and that being transgender isn't actually mentioned in the Bible at all. I'll be glad to point, I'd be glad to point you in the direction of studies and theologians about transgender identities, but it is my responsibility, but it's not my responsibility to figure out your theology for you. If our relationship and your faith is important to you, then it's worth reconsidering some of your beliefs. But a change in belief is what's required, not a single exception for our friendship. Then it goes on to say that, that times are changing and that we must as well. I would go on to say that the Bible is timeless and we must be tied to not the times, but to the timeless word of God. And when it clashes with the times, we stand firm, we stand firm. Not because we're arrogant, ignorant, unloving, or picking on a sin issue, but because we're just trying to be faithful, trying to be faithful, and trying to be loving the best as we can in a culture where people are easily offended, easily offended. Much, much more can be said. I did eight sermons on this in 2015. In the next few weeks, we're going to have those sermons packaged so that you can, because you'd have to go back to summer 2015, August and September to listen to those. I did eight full sermons on this, so I wasn't planning to reinvent the wheel today. Um, but I did want to, we'll, we'll put those on the website. They're there, but they'll be there in sort of a package where you could click on those and open to any of those if you want more. And I'm always available to talk through this issue a lot further. Uh, the next three weeks will be a little bit different, as Mike said. We will be taking a break from Romans for three weeks, and then we'll be picking up with Romans 2 at the end of the month. I'm looking forward to the next three weeks. Not because I get a break, but because I get a break. And um, <laughs> I'm glad everybody likes to go through Romans. Romans is technical. And this is only chapter one. We got a long way to go. Uh, any questions? A few questions. Let's all Karen first. Brad and then Crystal. 
Um, thank you for that, by the way. Um, I guess, how can you lovingly encourage someone um, who, who obviously identifies the sexual part of the sin, but will still pursue a, quote, monogamous sort of relationship where they say they're not having intimate relations, but still want to sort of have the same sex as a companion? So I would, I would, I'd, I'd probably ask a few more questions, but just to, I would, I would most likely be able to, so s saying I'm gay, I'm the, that's, a, that's an identity issue, right? So it's all about identity. It's an identity issue. Everything we, what people are, I'm gay, I'm straight, these are identity issues. So that's a question dealing with sort of what is the identity of this person? So saying I'm same sex, I want to hold on to that, but I'm in a monogamous relationship. I don't know if that means I disagree with it or I'm just not in one right now. But I would challenge, if that person is saying I'm a believer and I'm in this situation, I would, I would want to really ask them about their identity and sort of where do you find your identity? I know it seems like, hey, sexuality is a big piece of who we are, but like I don't, you know, you don't, I don't think of myself as a black Christian or a straight Christian or this, even a pastor. Like people say, I'm like, I'm a Christian first though. I was a believer. So, so there's an identity component there that I think what's happening is you're making same-sex attraction or being gay a part of an identity that God doesn't make a part of your identity because sex isn't even in eternity. It's not in eternity. Like, it's not, it's not there. There's no, even marriage. I'll know Betsy was my wife, but it's not like I'm going to be, like, taking her on dates in heaven. I don't, you know, we're not, I don't think that's going to happen. I think we'll know each other, but that won't be there. So I think it's not even an eternal component. So I would want to help people understand their identity is not rooted in their sexual desire, but more in what, who Christ is, what Christ has done. And I, tell, I push back in that way. Uh, I saw Crystal was over here. And there was someone else. Oh, Brad was over here. Right behind you, Crystal. So we know uh, 18 through 32 is just general downward spiral, period. Um, so I have two questions from that. The first one starts in 21, verse 21, and how when you talk to people like this, just their minds, like how they reason it. I look at their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts became darkened. So it's almost defeats the purpose because it's the that's part of the downward spiral that you won't understand logic or Christian logic or theology or biblical understanding of it because you this is part of that downward spiral. Is that when they, when you try to talk this through with people that believe this, that is that part of the downward spiral that they are senseless in their thinking, their thinking is worthless, so they can't reason through this biblically to even understand it the way God intended it? I think there's truth in that, but that doesn't stop you from reasoning. And the reason why is because I don't know what the Lord's doing in this person's heart or life. So I don't, you know, there, I mean, I, there was a time where you couldn't tell me nothing about being a Christian. I would be like, going to church, man, come on, man, I'm not trying. But now look at me, here I am. So not like I'm like, look, I've made it. I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I don't let that reality stop me from because we're also called to make disciples. And so even though someone may not, this is the thing in the church, the church has failed same-sex attractive people in this sense. We really treat that as an unpardonable sin. There are a ton of people who 
struggled with this, who sinned in these ways and got saved and came from that. But we act like, oh, man, they're they're getting married. So I guess that's it. It's like, man, what if they get divorced 12 years from now and remember the things that you've said in the course of your relationship and God uses that? Like we give up on people who struggle with this, but we don't want anybody to give up on us. So I just think there's a sense where, yeah, that's there. That does. That is a hindering. But I don't know what the Lord's doing. There are people I've been able to have clear conversations with who are gay, but they're like, bro, that was helpful, man. Thank you. I didn't necessarily change them in the moment, but it wasn't like they were like, you know, we kind of read those passages and think people are just like, Ugh, I refuse to believe in you. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> no, nah, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not that way. It's like there's, you know, we don't know what God is doing. You know what I'm saying? So, so I just, I just think we failed miserably in that way. And I'm indicting myself. I, it took me a while. We failed. It's like, man, people can, people, God saves folks. All right, part two, verse yep. 24. Um, Therefore God delivered them over in the, in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. Is that at that point talking about se- uh, homosexuality? Because that, the specific unnatural relations comes later. Is this just a general, even regarding heterosexual, sexual impurity and degrading themselves in their own bodies? Or is this referring to homosexuality? Is this the beginning of the reference? I, I, think, I think sexual impurity is sort of a general statement, but then it transitions to very specific. So I think he wanted you, yes, in a general sense, sexual impurity is generally, it can be man and a woman outside of marriage. It can be men and children. That's there, but it gets down to homosexuality in particular because it's making a point about sort of the unnaturalness of it. So it describes that you're doing this, but then it gets to this specific thing is so unnatural to the creation and what it was supposed to be that God's trying to make a point of like, look at how degrading, degraded your minds and your desires are. And I'm giving them over to you because you refuse to believe in me. So I think sexual impurity is general, but I think it's leading up to explaining what we call homosexuality today. Uh, Question over here. And then Brad will be the last question. Thanks. You can talk to me afterwards, obviously. So I have a question relating to sort of um, the way in which the world draws these connections between homosexual relationships and interracial relationships. So both in a worldly perspective of sort of being said, well, how could you say these two can't get together when like years ago these two people couldn't get together and this is perfectly okay within the church as well as within the church, them coming, us coming up against these own confrontations in the sense that, like, um, marry the people within your own nation or to each their own, which are arguably is more Old Testament-based, but I was just wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, good. So I think, and we'll get to this in Chapter 3 and 4 more, but I think the point is what Christ did, so when it says no... No slave, no free, no Jew, no Gentile, no Greek, nor the walls of relational hostility are supposed to be torn down in Christ. I'm not saying that that's how it's been applied always. And American history is a proof case of that. But that's not how it's supposed to be. So Christ comes and removes those relational distinctions. So that's why you could have in the early church a guy who used to be a Pharisee beside a former Gentile temple prostitute both singing hymns to the Lord that historically would have been like, don't, like the Samaritans, you know, 
Jesus goes to some people forget Jesus went to Samaria for three days and shared the gospel and people believe. So Jesus and the gospel, the cross is supposed to destroy those distinctions. People don't always apply that. And that's what we so we see that there's still sinful ways that that's played out. But if it were truly the gospel, which is why I'm the I'm a proponent of we haven't ever been a Christian nation is because you were able to, under the guise of a Christian nation, have these polarizing relationships that we're still impacted with today. And that actually is paving the way for people to rethink sort of certain theological concepts like sexuality because of some of the sin issues that you're talking about. So the Christ is supposed to knock all of that down. It just hasn't, it hasn't always happened. So we don't say, well, because it's like this. I mean, some cases people say this, but like if my, you know, like I don't, I don't blame, well, maybe people do. Actually, that's probably not a good example because people will blame the parents for what their kids do. So never mind. I, I'll say this because you do blame the kid parents. Here's what I will say, though. We can't blame Jesus for the sins of his people. I don't think like, well, Christianity is not real because this dude is a believer and he sinned in this way. And that's what people do. We can't. We don't do that. We don't say, oh, he's not real because he did this. So he, no, the, what Jesus told them, who he is, is still real, even if people disagree with him. And they're always going to be this tension between people profess to believe in them, but don't. Like, it puzzles me that the Ku Klux Klan has crosses on their clothes, and they would say they're white-blooded Christian males. Do you know that there are significant, significant theologians, German theologians, who supported the Holocaust? Significant. Gerhard Kittel has a 10-volume theological dictionary of the New Testament that we would consider as good theology, and he was an advocate for dur during the uh, Holocaust. Like, what in the world was he thinking? I don't know why that happens, but it does. And so we live in light of it. Good. Brad's the last one. Brad, Brad, hand. I like it. So obviously, this has been a challenge of mine um, for quite some time. Um, my question really comes back to looking more at the LGBTQ um, affirming churches and how they're like, why, why, why do you guys keep coming at this issue when Jesus was, pro was, pro um, was promoting social justice and taking care of the poor? And you look at their, and you look at their missions and what they do and they're constantly out and 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 being um, and ministering to the least of these, and it really comes back to me. It's like, is it holiness versus, like holiness versus justice in that sense? Or I, I'm still trying to wrestle. Like, these are supposed to be brothers and sisters, and at the same time, it's like, but do they just dismiss holiness altogether? Or mm. that's a good question. <clears throat> So here's a challenge with answering it because I, I have to determine if they're genuine believers or not, Fair. right? So that's the challenge with it, right? Not everyone who, everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, right? So I can't assume that everyone is a genuine believer because they go to a church. Um, I know passages like if you make one of the least, the little ones sin, it'd be better if you tied a millstone around your neck. I know that people can be deceived into thinking things are true and all of that stuff. So all that being said, 
I mean, if someone comes at me like that, in, in, you know, specifically, you know, there's a couple questions that I have. One is, so do you believe that the Bible talks about sin? So yes. Like, do you think there are things that people should not do? Well, yeah. Well, how do you know that? Okay, how do you know that people, well, because it said, well, how do you know that? Do you think lying is a sin? Yes. How do you know that? Well, because it said, well, how do you know that? Like, how do you not know that Paul in context meant this instead of this? How do you know that? What I'm trying to help them see is that, listen, if we play the game of, well, this and this, then what is a sin issue then? What can we have? You don't understand. What's at stake is not do I love people or not. What's at stake is, is the Bible a genuine book and a moral authority over my life? So if I determine that, well, this isn't really a sin issue, but then I got to do that with everything. How do I know adultery is not fine? Hey, in the Old Testament, didn't David have concubines? Well, why does it say? Oh, shoot, let me go get me. A, you know, like, what is that? You know, what? You can't. So I think there's, there's, there's a lot more at stake than just that. What I get is people love people, and they think the most loving thing to do is embrace them because they see the pain that it causes people. And that's difficult because we don't want to be the, the, the person who says you can't because you're in pain. You know, I, would, I don't want to do that. I hate the thought of that. But at the same time, the question then becomes, what is more loving? If my friend were drunk at a bar and was like, all right, man, I'm gone. I'm leaving. I was like, nah, man, you ain't driving, bro. Let me call you an Uber. And he was like, no, nah, I'm good. I can drive. And you know he just can't. He's sloppy drunk. No, I can't do it. I can't. And I, I said, all right, man. Well, I don't want to argue with you. I don't, I don't you know, if he, and I let him go and he dies. It's sort of similar. If someone is saying this is right and I think it's wrong and I don't want to say that it's wrong, I have a problem with that. So what I know is you can't change people's minds, though. There are churches that are thinking, hey, this theological framework is legitimate and that works for them. I've just gotten to a point now where I've studied it myself. I know what I believe. I will teach our church what I think. But at the end of the day, God's going to judge those folks. I'm not making any more judgments on people who do that. I just think I don't agree with that. I think God's going to have a problem with that. How he parses that out? Because there are teachers are the ones that are the most challenged. Jesus didn't correct the average person as much as he did the teachers. Pastors, the ones who lead those churches, are going to be in serious trouble when they stand before the Lord. Uh, but we can talk more yeah. uh, offline because I know the situation. Yeah. So we can talk a little bit more. But I think there's a lot of questions I ask. I want to help, help people see we're talking about Scripture. Like I'm saying I believe this is sinful and I have verses to prove that. Like apart from... a a, 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 a subjective sense of love, do, can you show me? Like, I had one person tell me, I said, look, okay, help me here. Show me, please, show me one positive reference to this issue in the Bible. Just please don't tell me I got to think what, what I naturally see. I don't think God made the Bible that complicated. Don't get me wrong. There are prophecies and stuff that are crazy, and there's imagery. Like I'm like, like man, I don't know. My best hope is the creature I saw in Lord of the Rings to describe what this is in, in Revelation. Okay, that stuff I get, but there are the majority of the Bible is just, it's narrative, it's stories, it's stories and commands. It's, it's not that complicated to me. So I think it with an issue like this, I don't think God would confuse all of his people to do that. I think what's confusing is us. 
We're the ones that are confused. And so that's what I would say. But can you show me one, one reference? Don't make me have to guess. Show me one positive reference. I would ask that person, show me how the narrative of Christ being married to the church and the bride of Christ, explain to me why that is the main theme in Scripture and how God sees marriage. Like, that stuff doesn't come out in these conversations. It's more about you're being unloving, and it's like, I would say you are being unloving because you're approving of something that may send this person to eternal judgment. And I would rather be wrong now. I'd rather be wrong now than be wrong when I'm standing before the Lord. I just would. I'd rather be wrong now and say, I think it's wrong now than be. But again, I just, I, I can't wrap my mind around it because I've read so much of this stuff. And the last thing I'll say, I know I'm saying a lot because this is a serious issue. Here's the last thing I'll say. I'm not even convinced, like, people who, who, who say this, they're not even convinced among themselves. So I just read to you people who are not Christians, except for N.T. Wright, the last one. There are people that are not Christians that have, are pioneers in gay studies that all say, nah, it's a, good, it's a good attempt, but the Bible does not approve of it. Let's just knock it off. Let's just not. The Bible doesn't approve of it. These people would more than anyone would want to prove that the Bible approves of it. And they're just like, nope. They just say, I don't approve of the Bible, but the Bible doesn't approve of it. I'm not on, the, I'm not on the, the wrong side of, if I'm on the wrong side of history, I'm on the right side of mystery. And I'm staying right there, so. Good, I'll be here. I'll be here till three. And get to me. And I'll be here as long as you need me to, sort of. Um, to, uh, again, this, this topic will be revisited sometime else. Sometime else.